Thank you, Fred. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, your word would uh, speak in all its truthfulness as it points to our Lord Jesus Christ in his glorious gospel. Pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles open to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, as you were following along as Fred uh, read our passage, don't close your Bibles. I want to point out something important. Uh, In verses 1 and 3, Paul mentions the teaching. In verse 5, Paul mentions the truth. In verses 10, 12, and verse 21, Paul mentions the faith. And in verse 14, Paul mentions the command. The teaching, the truth, the faith, the command are all synonyms for the gospel. More specifically, all of these terms point to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means when he speaks in verse 3 about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Our passage in verses 3 through 5 warns us that there will always be people who teach a different doctrine, who teach a different gospel. It's remarkable to me that a church that the Apostle Paul planted and then he pastored for nearly two years was allowing a different gospel to be taught so soon after his departure. While considering that, it occurred to me as I was uh, working on this sermon that this sermon should be a simple, basic review of the gospel so that we will be alert if someone should come into our own congregation teaching a different uh, view of the gospel. What is the gospel? Very simply, Jesus Christ is the gospel. To underscore this very important point, I repeat, very simply, Jesus Christ is the gospel. Calling people to have faith or calling people to repent is not communicating the gospel. A third time for emphasis, very simply, Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ is paid the penalty for our sins. We receive pardon for our sins only in Him. Jesus Christ, as I was teaching the young people just a few moments ago, has eternal life in His glorious resurrection. We receive resurrection life. We receive eternal life only in Him. Jesus Christ is eternally righteous. We receive eternal life. And perfect righteousness. The righteousness that we need in order to stand before God. We receive it only in Him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See, adoption into God's family only in Him. We are to live transformed lives as children of God. We receive God's powerful and transforming Spirit only. Grace. 
make no mistake about this very important point. Faith in Jesus Christ is the means by which we receive all that Christ is for us. Faith unites us to Christ. It unites us to all His saving benefits. Faith does not save us. Christ alone saves us. He is, after all, the Savior. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ went to the cross as a substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to be our resurrected Savior. Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God um, where He is ever making intercession for us. Nothing we can ever do can surpass His, His finished work of securing our salvation. We cling to Him alone for our salvation. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the heart of the gospel. Now I want to move on to review of some of the other central aspects of the gospel that help us to have a deeper and more thorough understanding of the gospel. Um, I want to do this by using what is commonly called the five points of Calvinism. And if this is new to you, uh, I uh, included an outline on the back of your bulletin that includes the first point that Jesus is the gospel and then the uh, five points of Calvinism. And the five points of Calvinism are typically taught using the anacronym TULIP. So the T in TULIP stands for total depravity. Total depravity is a theological term that teaches that, teaches that we are spiritually dead outside of Jesus Christ. Because of Adam's fall, every human being that has, um, that has been Adam's descendant has been born spiritually dead. We read about this in the confession of sin from Romans chapter 5. We are born as spiritually dead sinners. We are born estranged from God. And it's an active estrangement. We are not just separated from God. We are at war with God. Our nature is so opposed to God that we would never willingly come to God of our own decision. We are so willingly rebellious to God that we are unable to come to God. Scripture is very clear. Our depravity is such that we would never come to God. It is impossible for us to do so without Him drawing us powerfully to Himself. And so, uh, for scriptural uh, backing on this point, John six forty four, No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. No one is able to come unless the Father draws them to Christ. Romans 8, 7, and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's at war with God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
the Apostle Paul tells us, doesn't have the ability because the mind is so at war with God that it will not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is not able to do so. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Our sinful condition outside of Jesus Christ is called total depravity because sin has affected our entire person, our mind, our will, our emotions. They're all affected by sin. We're not as bad as we could be, but our entire nature is so bound by sin that we never love or trust God by ourselves. This doctrine of total depravity explains why uh, there's so much sin, so much hatred in our world. The Bible teaches that people outside of God are sinners at war with God, oftentimes at war with each other. And if that's the case, then how can anybody be saved? Well, it's only by God's initiative. From eternity past, God placed His love on His people. I fully understand that many people do not like the doctrine of election, but the Bible is very clear. God chose a people for Himself even before the world was created. And so again, a couple of Scripture passages. A little bit longer passages. Romans chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. For God chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one he loved. He chose us. He predestined us before the creation of the world. He chose us. He predestined us in his sovereign love alone for his glorious praise alone. Romans 9, verses 10 through 16. This is one of those heavy passages in the Bible. The Apostle Paul said, Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Rebecca had twins. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You say, wait a minute. God's making a distinction between Jacob and Esau, these twins, and he's choosing to love Jacob and hate Esau? Well, that doesn't seem right. I agree with you. It doesn't seem right. Why would God love Jacob? Jacob was a sinner. God, in his righteousness and in his justice, should have hated Jacob as well as hating Esau. But in God's purpose and election, His loving election that we just saw in Ephesians chapter 1 might stand, He chose to love Jacob. 
without going into a lot of detail about Jacob's life. Jacob was a stinker. He was a liar. He was a manipulator. And yet God, before Jacob was born, placed his love upon him and kept his hand upon him. Even as Jacob is running his own ways, cheating his father, cheating his brother, cheating his uncle, God kept his hand on Jacob. And before, as Jacob was heading back to reunite with his family, and his brother Esau was coming to meet him, and in Jacob's fear of what Esau was going to do, because uh, Jacob had, had so cheated him, God visited with him, wrestled with him, converted him, because God's hand was on Jacob the entire time from eternity past. Because he had placed his love on Jacob. And so Romans 9 continues. What shall we say? Because Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Well, that's quite a mouthful. And so Paul says, well, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. If God did not choose a people for himself, frankly, no one, none of us, could ever be saved. Because we'd never come to God to receive his mercy. Our hearts would be so dead in sin that we'd be willing and so willingly rebellious. To ever come to Him and love Him and entrust ourselves to Him. We'd never love Him if He never first loved us. Furthermore, Romans 11, verses 5 and 6 says, At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Our salvation cannot be of grace alone unless it begins with God. He elected us without looking into our future to see if we'd be worthy of His love. He elected us without looking into the future to see whether we'd choose him because none of us would choose him unless he took the initiative and drew us to himself God knew our future because God predestined our future and God loves us he didn't look into the future to see if we'd be worthy to be called his children he based his decision based only on looking into the future, he'd see a world of sinners that would never, ever love him, that would only hate him continually. But he placed his love upon us unconditional, unconditionally. And so the you in TULIP is unconditional election. So we've looked at the T, the total depravity. Now we've looked at the U, the unconditional election. God loved us just because He chose to love us. If He loved us from eternity, He'll never, ever withdraw His love from us. Moving on to the L. The L in TULIP is the most most misunderstood of the five points. It stands for the term limited atonement. 
it addresses the question for whom Christ came to die and for whom Christ's death um, made atonement. The most common view is that Christ died for all the sins of all people. Now think this through with me. If Christ died for all the sins of all people, then why are not all people free from the punishment due unto their sins? If their sins have been paid for, why is God going to send people into hell? Many will answer that they are not free from punishment because of their unbelief. So then I ask, is unbelief a sin? Of course it's a sin. So I ask again, why are they not all free from punishment if Christ paid even for their sin of unbelief? Because the Bible does not teach that every person will be saved. Then the common answer is that Christ did everything necessary for our salvation. But we must make the decision whether to accept the offer of His salvation. This view mutilates the very heart of the gospel by redefining what the atonement uh, really is. If Jesus' death on the cross was truly an atoning sacrifice, then all the sins of every person um, for whom He died, all their sins are necessarily paid for. But we don't believe in a universal atonement because the Bible doesn't teach a universal atonement. There's a less common, uh, commonly held view that is the biblical view. Christ died for all the sins of His elect. The Bible says that Jesus came to die for His people. It's the Christmas season. Matthew 1.21 Gabriel told Mary, or, or told Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Christ came to save His people. Christ, the Good Shepherd, lays down His life for His sheep. Christ came and purchased the church. He didn't purchase the world. He purchased the church with His own blood. Jesus in John 6, verse 37 through 39 says, All that the Father gives to me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up at the last day. You say, I I hear that. But what about those passages where um, where it talks about Jesus dying for the world? Well, we must take our definition of the world according to how it's used in the context. John 3.16, For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is using the word world in a moral context. The world is a dark place that hates the light because they love their evil deeds. So three verses down in John 3, 19 and 20, he, just, he defines the world that he's talking about in verse 16. Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil and hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So Jesus is saying that God so loved the world of darkness, this world of darkness that so hates Him. He so loves this world that He sent His one and only his beloved Son, to die for this dark world that hates Him. The world in its totality is saying, God, I hate you. And God says, I so love you that I'm sending my beloved Son to be the Savior. The stress is not on each and every person when He talks about the world, but on the sinfulness and hatred of sinners that God so loved. In other places where the words world and all are used, it typically means that God sent Jesus to be the Savior for Gentiles as well as for Jews. Jesus came to die for people from every tribe, from every nation, from every language. Jesus is a worldwide Savior, even if He did not die for each and every person. Jesus' atonement is not, is not limited in its power, but only in its design. His, atone, his atonement paid the, the full penalty for all of our sins. Our past sins, our present sins, even our future sins that we have yet to commit. He has already paid for them in full. All for whom Christ died. We'll come to Him. And this is the I in the tulip. So, total depravity with the T, unconditional election with the U, limited atonement with the L. The I it stands for irresistible grace. Because we're totally depraved. Because we are so willingly rebellious. Or as we just read from John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Because we so hate the light of God's moral purity. Because all those things are true of us outside of Jesus Christ. We are unable to come to God. Our nature must be changed. Before we would ever entrust ourselves to Jesus and love Him. Our nature is to hate Him. Our nature must be changed, radically transformed. Or as uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we must be a new creation. Therefore, Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verses 37 through 39, I've already read it um, under limited atonement. I want to read it again here under irresistible grace. And listen to Jesus saying, that He draws people to Himself, that He will never lose any of those whom God has given to Him. He says, All that the Father gives to Me will 
come to me. There's no doubt about it. All that the Father has elected from eternity past, all that the Father has placed His love on, all that the Father has given to Jesus Christ, Jesus says, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. What's the will of of the Father? In sending Jesus? Well, Jesus defines it. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the word for draw is the word for drawing a bucket up out of a well. The buckets don't help... Um, um, help itself climb up out of the well, it needs the rope and it needs the person who is drawing the bucket for the bucket to get out of the well. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Jesus says, and I will raise him up on the last day. When Jesus draws a person to himself, he's not going to let go of them. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. I'm sorry, I skipped over John 10, 16. John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He's talking to the the Jewish disciples. He says, I've got others. Uh, Not only you 12, but I've got a whole world of Gentiles as well. He says, I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Only his sheep will listen to his voice. All his sheep will listen to his voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you, are sa- you have been saved. So here, here we are, dead in our sins. We'd be continually dead. There were a dead person in the casket up here. And I said to the dead person, you can have eternal life if you would just sit up and receive it. If you would sit up and make the decision to have eternal life, it's yours. What's that dead person going to do? It's going to lie there and not get up. If that person did get up, I'd be running out of here pretty quick, right? Jesus says we're spiritually dead until God in His great love for us makes us alive in Christ. And that's what uh, irresistible grace is all about, is God gives us His grace irresistibly. He awakens us from spiritual death. And when we are awakened by the preaching of the gospel, by the Word of God, then because we're awake spiritually, because we... Because the Holy Spirit has transformed us. We reach out and we take hold of Christ and we love Him. These verses verses are teaching us that we must be regenerated. That we must have been made alive spiritually before we can believe. In other words, this is what Jesus means when He says we must be born again. But once we are alive, once we are born again, we will grasp Christ. We will trust in Him. We will love Him with all our heart. Our faith and our repentance is a gift of God's grace. Our salvation is God's work from first to last. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. Listen to that again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. What not of yourselves? Your faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. This is what we mean by irresistible grace. Our faith in Christ is the gift of God's grace. Our salvation is God's work from first to last. Because our salvation is God's work, we can be confident that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This brings us to the final letter in the tulip, the perseverance of the saints. God will keep His people. Some may backslide, but God will not let them go. He will bring them back to Himself. Some of the most precious passages in all the Scriptures teach this doctrine so clearly. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John chapter 10. I've quoted from uh, at least a couple of passages from John chapter 10 already. Well, this is a little later in that passage where Jesus is still talking about the fact that he's the good shepherd. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. In order for a true Christian to fall away from God, they have to be ripped out of Jesus' hand and the Father's hand. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because it's His love for us that makes the difference. John 6, 39, I think this might be the third time I've I've used this passage, this sermon. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. One of the first Bible verses I memorized was from 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You say, well, what about people who have fallen away? Well, elsewhere in First John, uh, the Apostle says that they went out from us because they did not belong to us. Had they belonged to us, they wouldn't have gone out from us, but their going out shows that they never really belonged to us to us. If you belong to God, you are in God's hands because you are in His everlasting and eternal love. Nothing can change that. God will never not love you. God will never let you go. 
God will keep you for Himself for all eternity. I just heard uh, this week that most heart attacks take place on Christmas Eve. It's a stressful time in life. As the stressful um, as the stresses of life pile up, weigh those stresses against the certainty of God's love. You've got the stresses of life that are weighing you down. Weigh it against the certainty of God's eternal love for you. And those stresses begin to get a lot lighter. It will put those, those stresses in proper perspective. So those are the five points. And I just heard about a pastor who bought his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini. I just heard about that this morning. He's one of those health and wealth, name and employment uh, shysters that uh, pose as pastors of a church. It's hard to believe that professing Bible-believing people would allow themselves to be so deceived. But Paul knew that people would be liable to believe error. And all across the professing, all across the world, professing Christians allow themselves to believe lies that are nothing more than distortions of the gospel. That's why he says here in verses 3 through 5 if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are de- uh, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul knows that professing Christians are going to believe distortions of the gospel. There are Christians that believe as the ground for their salvation, their sincerity, their obedience, or their goodness, or a combination of all three will be their salvation. I'm sincere. I'm obedient. I, um, I'm a good person. And for them, Jesus is just icing on the cake. He's not the salvation. He's just, he's peripheral. It's good that I believe in Jesus, but really what saves me is myself. There are others who believe that only the church gives them salvation. And so Jesus, for them, is a step removed. Because so many are so easily deceived, Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only five verses earlier, in chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. The reason they are so dangerous is they're peddling a different gospel. So, don't ever move away from the simple gospel of grace. Keep your focus on Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. And if you are here this morning and you are an unbeliever, how will you escape God's wrath if you continue to neglect this great salvation?
as we pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who is our salvation because he is our Savior. Father, I ask that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on him because his love is um, single-mindedly fixed on us. God, I pray that you would encourage the downcast. God, I pray that you would humble the proud. I pray that you would bring regeneration, that you would bring your irresistible grace to bear on any who do not know you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.